Thanks for listening to the Frontline Audiocast, the enhanced audio version of our documentaries. We also produce a podcast, The Frontline Dispatch, including a series called Unresolved, stories about unsolved murder cases during the civil rights era. Now, here is American Reckoning. An extraordinary look at the civil rights era through rare footage filmed more than 50 years ago. Living in Natchez, everything was separated. Blacks was on one side, whites was on the other side. You're America! We used to have a saying, the police and the Klan go hand in hand. And that was real clear in Mississippi during that time. I do. A little known black resistance group. Repeat your name. Willis Jackson. Willis Jackson. You began to see the deacons out in front protecting demonstrations, protecting black leaders, protecting the community. A wave of racist murders. Bomb slaying of civil rights leader Wallace Jackson. I heard an explosion in my mind. Like, what is that? I never heard anything like that before. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of these crimes that were never brought to justice. The ongoing federal effort to resolve them. A new bill before Congress proposes the creation of special units within the FBI and the Justice Department. The Till Act held the promise that we might get to the bottom of some of these cases that had never been solved. And a family's search for answers. My mind, even now, don't even, sometimes I can't even think of what happened. Cold cases are really, really, really hard. I relive this thing over and over again, hoping for some justice. Now on Frontline, in collaboration with Retro Report, American Reckoning. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, and by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler and additional support from Ku and Patricia Ewan, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. Support for American Reckoning is provided by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work. The WNET Group's Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty and opportunity in America with major funding by the JPB Foundation and additional funding by... and additional funding for American Reckoning by the following. This program contains mature content. Viewer discretion is advised.
1967, Natchez, Mississippi. Nearly 1,000 Negroes are marching silently through the center of Natchez, protesting the bomb-slaying Monday night of civil rights leader, father of five, Wallace Jackson. Jackson, an official of the local NAACP, had left his new job last night at the Armstrong Rubber Company, presumably en route home. The cab and the truck were completely demolished. Wallace Jackson, Jr. My father looked out for the black community in this town. And believe me, this community loved my father. He was just a god to me. Daughter Denise Jackson Ford. My father sacrificed his life so that we can have a better community and you don't have to be afraid. But will we ever get justice? A black man in the procession. They've been killing us here for 400 years. Right. It's got to come to a head. And we're sick and tired of that. We done built this country. Mississippi NAACP field director, Charles Evers. The sooner the white people realize that we aren't going nowhere, the better it's going to be for all of us. Wake up, white people. Before it's too late. This is a close-knit community here in Natchez. Wallace Jackson, Jr. As a kid, family life with me and my sisters, the girls were kind of talkative and whatnot, and uh, I could take so much, but I want to get out and ride around the street on my bicycle and see what's going on around town. We had horses, we had cows, we had goats. You know, of course, when we killed a hog or something, that everybody in the community got food, you know what I mean? And we shared like that out here. That particular time, my father knew he held three jobs trying to supply the needs of a wife with five kids. Wife of Warlist Sr., Ursulina Jackson. He was a good man, working hard, working man. Daughter, Denise Jackson Ford. My mom was a, a caregiver, and she was just a person that would do anything for anybody. One of the jobs she had was at one of the largest antebellum homes in the city of Natchez as a cook. Daughter Deborah Jackson Sylvester. That's all a lot of black people did was cook and clean up at the Staten Hall. Living in Natchez, everything was separated. Blacks was on one side, whites was on the other side. My mother and father tried to shield us from violence that was going on. A lot of violence was going on at that particular time. This public hearing of the United States Commission on Civil Rights will now come to order. There have been cross burnings, bombings, church burnings, and killings. Dr. A.B. Britton, Jr., chairman of the Mississippi Advisory Committee. Justice under law is not guaranteed for the Negro in Mississippi in the way that it is for the white man. Concordia Sentinel editor, Stanley Nelson. Southwest Mississippi, Natchez and Concordia Parish in the 1960s were this sort of like this frontier region where people still lived by vigilantism and it had never been challenged. 
you had a huge Klan population in this area. And that's the way things were. At the time, I didn't really understand that my daddy was in the Klan. Leland Boyd, son of a Klan member, Ursel Boyd. We were kind of made to go to some of the meetings. We actually, uh, me and my brothers would uh, deliver the, the flyers and stuff. We didn't really understand what was going on, I guess. Robert Shelton was Imperial Wizard of the United Clans of America. I would first like to state very emphatically we are Southerners defending our heritage and defending our beliefs. My father was James Horace Taylor, Jr., but his nickname was Sonny. Daughter Deborah Taylor. When everybody first met him and they didn't know him, they'd think he was charming. You know, he could, he charmed a lot of people, but he was really at home and hit me and tell me to tell the teacher I ran into the clothesline. He beat us off for talking to anybody. We were not allowed. He thought we should send them back to Africa or kill them off. Leland Boyd. The things that set them off, probably more than anything else, was the fact that the blacks were looking for equal rights. We are sick and tired. Fannie Lou Hamer of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. We are going through being bit by dogs. Yes. Some of them being shot down. Yes. Some of them being beat in jail. Yes. We are not fighting back, but we going on because there's nothing right here. Freedom Summer organizer Bob Moses. We hope to send into Mississippi this summer upwards of 1,000 teachers, ministers, lawyers, and students to try and force, if possible, some real change in that state. Mississippi Governor Paul B. Johnson, Jr. Those people have got these youngsters coming into Mississippi not knowing what the situation is. We are going to see to it that law and order is maintained uh, Mississippi style. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People have united their hearts and minds in a massive voter registration drive. Each and every one of you that have registered in the last 10 days, please stand. Deborah Jackson Sylvester. I remember my mom and my dad was telling us they were forming the NAACP, they were going to be a part of it. Ursulina Jackson. They started the NAACP pack up with Charles Evers. Charles Evers. We're here to serve notice on all of those who have been so brutal to us in the past, that your day is gone. Charles Evers is the NAACP field director in Mississippi. The man who had the job before him was his brother, Medgar, killed in an ambush in Mississippi. Charles Evers. After they shot Medgar. I think I'm going to Mississippi and kill every crack until they kill me. And my wife said, no, Charles, please. I said, yes, I am. At that time, you could carry guns, like I always do. I could carry guns. You have a gun right now? Yeah. Oh, sure. I keep guns. I always, I always keep guns. Can you show me? Well, I can't show you. No secret. 
I brought down my thugs from Chicago. We were going to start killing white people. I went to make it off here on Lynch Street, where I finally took over. I sat there, some of us came and said, y'all knocked that way. This is the way men go down. And that's when I went out and helped Jesse Bernard and Wallace Jackson and uh, George Metcalf to organize the NACP branch in Natchez. Metcalf took on the presidency and Jesse took on the office management. Wallace Jackson, he was treasurer. And they became the leaders. George Metcalf and Uncle Wallace were very close. Cheryl Glover. They would come in and get around the dining room table and start these discussions. The George was loud and, and Wallace was quiet, but they both were forceful. Deborah Jackson Sylvester. Tension started getting really high in Natchez when the ANAACP started growing. Cheryl Glover. You would actually have Klansmen show up and stand outside of their meeting. One time it was nightfall, and following the meeting, we were driving. We were on a dirt road. All of a sudden, there were bright lights. Mr. Metcalf said, don't turn around, don't turn around. Get on the floor. The gentleman that was in the front seat pulled out a gun. Nobody ever turned around to look in the back, but you could see these beaming, high-beam lights. Uncle Willis kept driving. Finally, the truck turned off. Not a word was said. At a meeting. August 13, 1965. For the protection of our Negro citizens against the Kluger Klan racist group in the Negro area. As of now, we do not have protection from our local law enforcement, the sheriff, nor the chief of police. We used to have a saying, the police and the Klan go hand in hand. Professor Akinyele Umoja. And that was real clear uh, in Mississippi during that time. It was known that there were Klan members in the Natchez Police Department. Local black men were tired of it. The Negro Protection Organization of Adams County and law. Take the time to read. Rule one, that is to not break the law, but to make sure the law is enforceable on all citizens. Do not attack first at any time. James Jackson. The real reason for this is not to, to stir up trouble, not to start trouble, is to prevent it. You understand? Prevent. Right? You know the real stuff we're finna take, right? Get out now because once no, again, there ain't no time. out, see? Now's the time right now. Yeah. Huh? Who? How y'all doing? How you doing? All right. My boss was a very courageous man. Wallace Jackson Jr. He was a decorated Korean War veteran. We wasn't a family of fear. Where you work? I work at Armstrong. And where you live? What section of town you live in? I live on North Union. North Union? Yeah. See, we might make your house communication house. We got to ask some communication home, you know, resident. So we like for you to attend our meeting uh, uh, in the night yeah. that you're off. Yeah. You understand? Mm -hmm. well, who want to be first man? Left hand, both knees on the floor. Good. Repeat after me. I do. I do. Solid swell. Solid swell. Up on. Up on. My own free will. My own free will. Up again. 
within the land of my life. Of my life. Repeat your name. Willis Jackson. Willis Jackson. Yeah. I do solemn swear, swear upon Born. my own free will, own free will. According, according that I will not, that I will not reveal, reveal or invade. for the Natchez Adams County Public Schools. The undersigned hereby petition your board to initiate racial desegregation of the public schools under your jurisdiction and control. Concordia Sentinel editor, Stanley Nelson. By late August, the NAACP filed a lawsuit against the schools for desegregation. We would follow request that the names of these of those signed this petition not be made public in order to protect the signers from possible reprisals and harassment. Former Natchez Alderman Tony Byrne. There was a, a fear and uh, a resentment of desegregation of the schools at the time in the white community. There was just wild rumors of uh, what was going to happen if the blacks took over. Deborah Taylor. My dad and the Klan did black people in our schools, offices, anything. They wanted to get it stopped at all costs. August 27, 1965. George Metcalf, president of the Natchez chapter of the NAACP, was critically injured in Natchez this afternoon when dynamite hidden beneath the hood of his car exploded when he turned on the ignition. Wallace Jackson, Jr. When the bomb went off on the hood of his vehicle, a lot of that metal and brass just went back into his face. After the bombing of Metcalf's car, the black community explodes. Natchez NAACP Secretary Jesse Bernard Williams. What is happening is that the people are arming themselves, true, but tonight people just want to serve notice on the city, that's all. We just going to let these people know we tired. We have a mass meeting tonight, Friday, August 27, 1965, place, 9 St. Catherine, time, 6.30 p.m., purpose, protest, Ku Klux Klan violence. Good Natchez NAACP President Charles Evers. As we have told them many a time, they can destroy a man, but they cannot destroy this movement. Didn't do a thing that made us more determined. We're more determined than ever that we're going to rid Natchez of all the races, the bigots, the Ku Klux Klan, and you're going to do your job as police officers and as mayor of our cities or uh, else. You figure out what else is. <laughs> James Jackson. I'm going to say, yeah, man, do whatever I can for freedom. If I had to die for it, man. Natchez activist Sarah Clifford Boxley. After George Metcalf is car bomb, enter James Jackson. 
who is the cool street dude, dark glasses. Hey, man. Tall, dark, and handsome. Who's your favorite movie star? Hey, man. Marlon Brando. Professor Akinyele Mojo. James Jackson was a local barber. Very charismatic, always with his gun to his side. The community is angry. The whole idea of nonviolence is out the window. The quickest way to freedom is to meet violence with violence. Violence with violence. Black murder. This is a powder keg, man. And tonight, tonight, the fuse is going to be lit. On the day after that bomb explosion of George, five young men made a trip to Bogalusa, Louisiana. They had heard about the Deacons. The Deacons first started in Louisiana. They clashed with the police as they openly practiced armed self-defense. They got national attention. Natchez activist Richard Dip Lewis. We decided to drive to Bogalusa and ask them how they got organized. We got there about maybe about 1 o'clock that night. They sent us down the back road and fine. We were surrounded by black flag, I don't know what. Shotgun on my nose like that through the door. James Jackson, he got out of the car and went with it. But they came back about an hour or so later. They gave us guns, and then we came on back here. Louisiana Klan leader Jack Helm. This is your America. This is your land. We are not going to be run out of our own country by a bunch of cannibals and savages. And we're not going to let the defense, what's the name of those niggas? Uh, we're not going to let them take over our country. The Natchez in the uh, other side of the Mississippi River probably had the largest Klan group per capita in the United States. But, you know, they were afraid of the deacons. They didn't know what they were dealing with. See, they thought it was 500 of us. It started off one but five of us. United Klan's Grand Dragon, E.L. McDaniel. These deacons for defense. We know who they are. And I'm sure that they know who I am. But one thing I can say for every white man that dies at the hand of these filthy mobs, there are going to be hundreds of those no-good African jungle bunnies that's going to go down in the streets. Leland Boyd, son of a Klan member. I had a lot of fear. I was expecting um, to have another civil war. Klu Klux Klan used to take pictures of us. Thought we were going to run. The Klan had signs saying, the Klan is watching you. And they would have signs saying, the deacons are watching you. James Jackson. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm as afraid as the next man. I'm scared, man, you know? You got time set to die. Like, uh, Mecca, I got, car got blowed, all the pieces, man, it's still alive. So you don't die until your time comes. By taking a risk, man, that don't mean that you're gonna get hurt. Right. You know what I mean? Deacon Otis Fleming. There's not many of us, but if we're together, just like a fist, man, just like a fist, you know, we can be stronger than we can if you, if you just come out open like this, you know. Professor Akinyele Omoja. You began to see the deacons out in front protecting demonstrations, protecting black leaders, protecting the community. Former Natchez alderman Tony Byrne. 
The white people were concerned when they saw the black people carrying guns. They knew about the so-called deacons for defense. It was, uh, I'm sure, very frightening to a whole lot of them. Deborah Jackson Sylvester. As a little girl participating in the marches, just seeing how they were throwing stuff at us, calling us niggers, it was just ugly. Deacon Richard Dip Lewis. If they were out there marching, and some white wanted to break in there and jump on somebody, we grabbed them and stumped them to the ground. With the deacons, you had a rhetoric uh, that was different from previous rhetoric you know, you would hear from Martin Luther King and others in the nonviolent aspect of the movement. I believe it's like Martin Luther King, everybody else, I believe in nonviolence, you know? On the other hand, I'm, I believe that our people should stop getting killed, man, like, you know? Self-defense is a longer tradition that goes on in black communities from our inception, right? Deacon Sarah Clifford Boxley. I go to a meeting of the Deacon for Defense and I observe the fact that they needed more weapons. So I invite Dip here along with a spokesperson for the Deacons named James Stokes to California. Boxley introduced me to a different organization. We told them about what was going on down here in Natchez and they gave us guns and they gave us money. When they came back, they had the capacity to hit the street immediately to checkmate the Klan. The black community, they're out by the hundreds to demonstrate and protest, and they have these demands that they're given to the city council and the mayor. Charles Evers. They're very simple. We had 12 of them. In police brutality. They're very simple. We had 12 of them. In police brutality. These are get all public facilities and public accommodations. Denounce the Klan. in all the downtown stores. These are get all public facilities and public accommodations. Until we get some High Negroes in all the downtown stores. We're going to. This is what we want. We want to know what can you do about them. That's what I thought. I think one important area. This is what we want. We want to know what can you do about them. That's what I thought. When the negotiating group was selected by Charles Evers, he only selected black males. They ignored the contributions of black women. Jesse Bernard Williams. See, very honestly, it's these ladies, people like Mrs. Duncan, Mrs. Jackson. They are the people who are really getting the job done around here. No, you got to go. Sure, but I mean, it's not who gets the job done, it's the one who can represent the people. Okay, nobody was being arrested out on the picket line. And the men, the ladies were the ones who fought off those dogs. Well, then. Okay, there's a declaration of the Negro citizens of Natchez, Mississippi. The United States. The mayor rejected all of the demands. The announcement is that the city has rejected every one of these demands. Rejected every one. Here is a news bulletin from WNAT. The 
mayor and board of aldermen of the city of Natchez at a special meeting this afternoon has taken strong action to preserve peace and order in Natchez by passing a resolution invoking a citywide curfew. Sarah Clifford Boxley. To try to prevent demonstrations and marches. The governor called in the National Guard. Charles Evers. You tell the good mayor that I said he can get all that injunction, conjunction, and some junction he want to get. Yes. We're not going to spend our money with them anymore. Yes. Tell you how people can give them decent jobs and recognize them as individuals and human beings. Charles Evers. We decided we're going to walk over white store in Natchez. Downtown Natchez is under a strict boycott by nearly half the population. The boycott began when the Negroes failed to get their 12 demands from city officials. The mayor at the time had a whole shopping center. Me and Nasser, we shut his whole damn shopping center down. James Stokes. Keep the white man's dollar out of his pocket, and you can control him instead of him controlling you. Cheryl Glover. You would walk down the little downtown area, and the storekeepers, they've got comments. I've always been good to you. This would be the kind of statements, and they couldn't understand it. Mrs. Merle Schott has run a dress shop in Natchez for 27 years. So how would you assess the effect of the boycott on your store? Well, they haven't boycotted me. They only boycotted Natchez. And when they did that, well, we all are suffering. Former alderman Tony Byrne having a family department store that was owned by mother and two uncles. We all wondered why we were, why we were picked on. I want every man in here to stand up. Every man. If the children can walk the line, you can protect them. Warless Jackson, Jr. My mother and father told me the store that they were boycotting we don't want you to go in there. We don't want you to spend your money in there. As a boy, I didn't quite understand it then. The Negroes meet nightly to work on enforcing the boycott until the whites give in or cave in. We mean don't break our boycott. We're not talking white folks, we're talking Negroes, our folk. We have a right to discipline our people. Charles Evers. A lot of people go ignore us. You can't do it. This is for your freedom. There's one old preacher. You don't tell me where I can shop. I said, get him. He can put defense with South Security Force uh, enforcers. These enforcer squads would punish people who were going to break a boycott. Janice Jackson, daughter of James Jackson. James Jackson. A lot of people feared him. I remember a lot of people feared him. They said, you know, he was a big man, and they did not mess with Big Jack. That's what they call him, Big Jack. Every day, I doubt we might. A lot of them went to jail back then, I remember. The whack just wasn't going to give in. Come on with it then. You know what we want. One month after the Metcalf bombing, Charles Evers. Now, we in a serious business. <laughs> We are fighting for the things we've been denied so long. The First Amendment gives us the right to peacefully protest anything that we think is wrong. Now, we're going to do that. 
We're going to march in this city until the mayor and the board of arms and the rest of those who've been keeping us down so long open the doors to all the people. Amen. How many of y'all going to meet tonight? Denise Jackson Ford. My mom, well, she used to say my, my dad asked her not to go to the march, but she was one of the ones she went anyway. My mom was just like my dad, hard-headed. I'm going to do what I need to do to help this community. Sarah Clifford Boxley. There are these marches at night that are taking place. 300 marchers are arrested for parading without a permit. I'm the chief of police, J.T. Robinson. If you don't disperse and go home, I will have to put you under arrest. Parading without a permit, which is in violation of the city ordinance. There's another attempt to march. 150 are arrested. And then yet another march is attempted. Get back on that side, please! Ursulina, wife of Warless Jackson Sr. We walked that crowd of block before the police stopped. Dead buses. Coming and picked us up and took us to Parchment, Mississippi. Once they were at Parchment, it's cold, they were stripped naked, they were given a laxative. They made us all drink about an eight ounce glass. They said, well, you know, you're going to drink this medicine or else. Hmm. Get beat to death. Wallace Jackson Jr. No toilet paper was given to them, nothing like that. They sprayed water on them in the cell so they froze. They put eight of us my side in one cell. <laughs> we were there all that night, hear the people moaning, sick, asking for help. It was torture to the highest extent. Richard Dip Lewis. I went up there, me and my the other two deacons, we hung around on the outside apartment, trying to peep in and see what was going on, da da da. Well, I, you couldn't see because they had dogs running around, but we wanted to let, them, let somebody let them know that we were there. My husband made it out to get me out, get us. Several of us out, but so many of them still left there. It was awesome. It was awesome. They give us no explanation about why they're taking our clothes. They just stripped us naked and said we were marching against good white people. Former Alderman Tony Byrne. After the article came out in the paper about the people being sent to parchment, uh, some of the guys I played tennis with they asked me, I said, did that really happen in Natchez? And I said, yeah, that's, that's those pictures of, you know, here in Natchez. Concordia Sentinel editor, Stanley Nelson. I think most white people, to be honest, sort of turned their head the other way. Maybe it'll go away if we don't say anything. Georgia State University professor Akinyele Umoja. 
in response to the boycott, six white businesses closed within weeks. Christmas shopping season is coming up. The white commercial group convinces Mayor Nasser and the aldermen to negotiate. They surrender. They give in to the 12 demands. Three months after the Metcalf bombing, Natchez Mayor John Nasser. Well, to start with, I wouldn't call them any con uh, concessions. I think it's a matter of, uh, of getting together and uh, trying to solve our differences and agree on something. By using armed resistance, Deacon for Defense and Justice, and enforcing that boycott, that wore down the Jim Crow white supremacy leadership and structure of Natchez. Charles Evers. I feel that this, I've been in many demonstrations and many protests, and I feel that this, if it's carried through, and we hope it will be carried through, has been the greatest concessions that has been granted to any civil rights organization in any section of this country. Akinyele Umoja. As a result of the agreement that was reached, 23 white-owned businesses agreed that they would hire black employees. Six black police officers were hired. So you go put your hand down, look like a revolution. Several public institutions were desegregated. James Stokes. It's the best thing that ever could happen. Concordia Sentinel editor Stanley Nelson. The Klan was shocked to see how, instead of making the black community afraid, the bombing simply made them more resolved. Mr. Mayor, do you anticipate any violent reaction from Ku Klux Klan or any other organization as a response to the concessions? No, I don't. Deborah Jackson Sylvester. Back then, my dad worked three jobs. I remember him working at Wholesome Bakery. Denise Jackson Ford. You know, he was a barber, he cut hair. And Armstrong, tie and rubber. Cheryl Glover. He had the overnight shift. Warless Jackson Jr. After my mom got arrested in the 60s and went to parchment, she came down with lupus disease. She was sick a lot. My dad would step in, comb my hair, take us to school, cook. He could cook, too. He wasn't a great cook, but we had to eat whatever he fixed. <laughs> Some days when he caught my hair, it was interesting. <laughs> Stanley Nelson. After Metcalf was injured, he didn't have anybody. So Wallace and Ursulina cared for him. George Metcalf worked at the Armstrong Tire and Rubber Company along with my father. They wrote together to work every day. He was like his provider. At Armstrong, as a result of the Civil Rights Act, all of the plants now are under directive from the federal government to be open up different jobs to blacks. And so this new job comes open. It was not a desirable job as far as the work was concerned, but it was a desirable job because of the money. Jackson applied for it, and I think 122 people at the plant were eligible for that position, but he had more experience than anybody, and he got the job. 
Charles Evers. He did tell me about they gonna promote him and they talked to me about it. And I agreed with what they wanted to do what you had to do. And I always felt like the Negroes should have the same opportunity as anyone else. And if you're at the plant and the opportunity a position come over, then the often you take it. My mom was real worried about my dad. She was almost, you know, like in a nervous frenzy every time my dad would leave and go out to work. Jackson had a whole lot of things going against him. He was involved in civil rights. He rode to work with George Metcalf, and he took a job that for the history of Armstrong Tire Company had only belonged to a white man. You hear a lot of grown people telling my dad to be careful. And my dad always said, don't worry, he'll be back. February 27th, 1967. Wallace Jackson, Jr. I stood right here working on my bicycle in front of my house. I was trying to get my banana seat right, and I had a big, nice, big, fat tire on the back of it. I used to see those uh, guys riding those choppers. Man, I wanted to make my bike like that, too, a little 20-inch bicycle. I heard the explosion in my mind, like, what is that? I never heard anything like that before. I jumped on my bicycle. I shot right down there and shot straight to this here, street here. You can look straight down the street to MLK. I'm, I'm noticing people outside of their houses, you know, and I just rode up there and started looking at it. Generally in the street. Not knowing who he was. And seeing the truck, knowing who truck that was, and not being able to connect the dots together. I saw a shoe that he was wearing, and I grabbed that shoe and came to the house. And later I heard from my mother as I grew up, I had come back with his flesh in the shoe. When the explosion happened, I was in the kitchen, and you can hear all the sirens. You know, you could see the lights. My mom, when she heard that song, she said, that's your daddy, that's Jackson. Before she could finish saying it, they were knocking on the door, letting her know that was my daddy. Ursulina Jackson. They took him to the chair that I was building. When I got there, my, I just saw the blood stream. I just followed. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And it went right to it. And he was laying there on the table. My mind, even now, I don't even, sometimes I can't even think of what happened. I'm, I get pieces of it at times. But I relive this thing over and over again and have been doing it for years, hoping for some justice. Chief, from your preliminary investigation, can you tell us the sequence of events that led to this? Uh, well, um, last night, uh, during a heavy downpour rain, 
Uh, well, this is Jackson. I understand he's, he went on a new job yesterday. He got off at 8.01 at Armstrong Tire and Rubber Company. And uh, apparently he had driven this far uh, before the explosion. We're running down any leads. We're, we're, we're going to interview everyone on, everybody on this street. And uh, we're getting them dust now for fingerprints. Then we've uh, got these bomb experts coming in. You expect an arrest in this one? I'm hoping so. That's a terrible feeling to know that someone that you've been with so close with and been killed maybe because of something you helped them to do. It hurt. Still does. You said then that the, that the headquarters of the Klan here in Adams County is here at Armstrong. Is that right? Uh, I didn't say the headquarters. I mean, the, this is a, a hotbed of here at Armstrong. And that's why we're asking that the, we boycott Armstrong until they can get these uh, un-American people out of here. Then that'll cease to have these bombs and killing. That's destroying Negroes. This looks like one here, too. There's a green jacket on. It looks like an umbrella. Look out for murder. They call it Big Red Murder. L.C. Murray. Two brothers. But the one with the brown was the one that we worked with, uh, with yeah, Jackson. Man. That's the one that asked George with the bomb placed on his seat. <coughs> Did you tell the FBI? Yeah. We, citizens of our beloved National Pacific, have gathered here tonight to call upon the officials of the United States government to apprehend, charge, try, convict, and punish those responsible. Stanley Nelson. By the mid-60s, the federal government realized we have this problem in southwest Mississippi, and something is always flaming up. We may as well stop fooling ourselves now. We're tired of going down and killing the people. What's that? Say some white boys running the middle. Oh, DJ, I'll just uh, report that down. Uh, the hit fell off. Hey, I'm going to until the FBI figure out who is committing these murders, this is going to continue. They flood, I think altogether there's 180 agents in Natchez. They give it a code name, War Bomb. Former Alderman Tony Byrne. The FBI came in in droves. Everybody knew who they were because the cars didn't have FBI on them, but they had so many antennas you knew who they were, and they're all dressed in suits. It's very strange uh, to me uh, that it was all focused right here on, on Natchez former FBI agent Joseph Ryan. When I got to the crime scene uh, the second day, there were no fingerprints that were distinguishable. Fingerprints uh, are usually very traceable in a vehicle. But this one had so much powder, so much dust, uh, so much uh, residue from the blast that there was nothing distinguishable as far as prints were concerned. 
They were looking for blasting caps, explosives. We, we tried to trace all of that. We had to find out when and where a bomb had been placed underneath his vehicle. I think we talked to two gas station owners and a repair shop. That all came up a big negative. All we could do was try to talk to people and see who may have seen something or heard something. Charles Evers. Now, now listen good. We talked to, the, to some of the officials of the FBI, and they have assured us that they have done everything to investigate and try to apprehend these murderers. On the one hand, black citizens wanted the protection that our government could bring to bear. Paula Johnson is co-director of the Cold Case Justice Initiative at Syracuse University College of Law. At the same time, there was a great deal of distrust. I remember them coming by, sitting there telling my mom, you know, we're still gathering information, we're doing interviews and stuff like that, but they never had nothing positive to tell her, never gave her any hope. J.T. Robinson, chief of police, I think he had a good working relationship with the FBI, but he felt like it was not particularly his case as much as it was the FBI's case. What I want to say is, I was elected chief of police, not for the white community or the colored community, but it was for the city of Natchez. That during all of our racial strife that we had when Medgar was born, we worked around the clock, and the relations I have, I thought, has been real good here, here as lately. As long as I'm chief of police, I'm going to do what's right for the community. Stanley Nelson. The reason black people in Natchez have such a problem with JT is over parchment. That's something I think that forever marked him with the black community in Natchez. You got the mayor, top official that, and he set up and made his statement. See, they say we're going to try to do, but we ain't coming with that trying. This is a must-up. Sarah Clifford Boxley. The response in terms of the black community is helplessness. James Jackson. Everybody's scared to. They haven't caught anybody for all this bumming and all uh -huh. this whooping and stuff, man. They haven't caught anybody. James Stokes. Well, there was nothing you could do. You wasn't alone. You had to wait for the decision of the FBI's. The FBI conducted hundreds of interviews and did extensive surveillance, documented in thousands of pages of the war bomb file. By 1968, the federal investigation ended without any indictments or arrests. Mr. Charles Evans. Uh, to the ministers and to all the people of the audience. I don't know how many more times we'll have to do this. 
frankly, I really don't know what to say. There's no law or no protection against if you're a Negro. And you live in a state where, since my brother was killed three years ago, 41 Negroes, including our own, has given his life. And all Mr. Jackson was guilty of, he wanted a job to make it better for his wife and five children. That's all he wanted. And yet they said, Negroes, please be patient. How long do you want us to be patient? And then you wonder, what kind of justice do we have here? What kind of country is this? NAACP Executive Director Roy Wilkins. America can no longer uh, stand for this. Uh, uh, we had four little girls uh, killed in Birmingham. We had Medgar Evers assassinated in Jackson. And we had a man killed in, in Natchez, Mississippi. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee Chairman John Lewis. We know what happened to civil rights workers. We know what happened to Negroes in Mississippi. Sometimes you find them in the river, sometimes you find them hanging from trees, and sometimes you don't find them. I was very young when I heard about what happened to Emmett Till. Congressman John Lewis. I remember seeing the open castle, and I was moved to try to do something about it. 2007, 40 years since the Jackson bombing. Mr. Speaker, I'm so pleased the Emmett Till unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act is being considered today. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of these crimes that were never brought to justice. There are murders who have walked free for decades. The blood of hundreds of innocent men and women is calling out to us. It pierced my soul to see him take his last breath in my arms. Interview excerpts produced in collaboration with StoryCorps. The life was taken just for nothing. It's something I, I don't guess you ever get over. We were a lost family. Whites could get away with anything. And I guess we're supposed to sweep all that up under the rug. I can't go through one day, not one day, without thinking about dad in my mind. He was a good guy. Until I closed my eyes for the last time. That was individuals, I said, this is old. How can we go back? And we had to argue, we must go back. For the sake of justice, for the sake of closure, the 110th Congress must pass this legislation. We must do something to right these wrongs. In 2008, Congress passed the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act. Deborah Jackson Sylvester. When they introduced the Emmett Till Act, I remember hearing it on the news. Murders that were once ignored or under-investigated during the civil rights era are finally getting more attention. A new bill before Congress proposes the creation of special units within the FBI and the Justice Department. These units would Former Alderman Tony Byrne. As far as people coming in and, and trying to dredge up and talk about the murders and things that took place, I think a lot of people say, why bring it up again? It's just it's something that happened in the past and they want to get over. They start naming all these different cases. It was like, wow, 
somebody actually trying to do something after 40 years. Cynthia Deedle was chief of the FBI Civil Rights Unit. I began to lead the initiative in December of 2008. When I started, it was so hard to overcome that lack of trust between the victims' families and all of law enforcement. My name is Cynthia Deedle. At a town hall meeting, Cynthia Deedle tried to shake out some new leads, but there were some in the audience who think the initiative is little more than public relations. There's been nothing did, and I hate to say things like this, because the FBI is the only help I got. Cold cases are really, really, really hard. We're talking about cases that are 30, 40 years old. Former U.S. Deputy Assistant Attorney General Roy Austin. Evidence does disappear. Memories fade. I think the Till Act certainly raised expectations. I think anyone who is looking for answers about a, a family member who has died thinks that, you know, this is my chance to get answers. Congressman John Lewis visits the Jackson family. Uh, good morning. How you doing? Good to see you. Good to see Ms. Ford. How you doing? I'm John Lewis. Hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Uh, good to see you, brother. Good to see you. Let me ask you a question. What more, uh, you know, just for our case, we see after 50 years, a lot of these people are dead. Yeah. So how, how can we uh, bring well, closure? How can we, I mean, what, what can we do through this bill? Well, we need to continue to investigate because it could be family members or some of the people who committed these unbelievable acts of violence. They're living, walking around every single day. I work right beside of a KK's, one of the KK members, mm -hmm. daughter-in-law. Mm -hmm. I'm quite sure that someone knows yeah. something. Yeah. And for them to not have come forth after all these years, mm -hmm. It's just, it's unbearable. Mm -hmm. A lot of families that suffered during that period, I honestly believe a lot of them still got a lot of anger in them. Mm -hmm. and, and I can use my brother's example. He still got a lot of hurt. I, I know what you have been through. What happened in Natchez and other parts of the South was vicious, sick, and just wrong. I remember the first time I came to this state, members of the Klan attacked us when we tried to enter a so-called white waiting room. They left us lying in a pool of blood. And a lot of the people, uh, they knew what was happening. You know, they looked the other way. So I think they have to come forward. People who know something. I find nothing greater to live for than to see justice and to uh and not on the father case, but other cases. Mm -hmm. For years and for years, no one can find no information on my father's murder in this town. Okay, brother. But then someone comes along and gives you a hope. America. Concordia Sentinel editor Stanley Nelson. Being a white person, I had never heard of many of these murders in my whole life. And I got to thinking, you know, if I didn't know anything about it, particularly working at a newspaper, I doubt most people did not. 
I wanted to find out what happened. Cold Case Justice Initiative co-director Paula Johnson. The Till Act held the promise that we might get to the bottom uh, of some of these cases that had never been solved. We got our hands on the war bomb um, files by initially filing a Freedom of Information Act request. I went down to Washington, D.C. We went down to the archives, and there was a cart that came out and just had several boxes of information on this investigation of the Warless Jackson case. We were sharing information with Stanley. Um, he was sharing information with us. The more you read, the more fascinated you get. Then you feel like you're looking into a window of time. Armstrong was filled with many Klansmen. There was talk going around and threats made. A hearing of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Janitor Alfred Whitley from Natchez, a center of Klan activity, told how a gang of hooded men took him to a swamp one night last year, stripped him naked, and whipped him. They rolled out two bull whips then. And you hear this, it popped around over my head a little. Say, well, don't you know we know you is the lead nigger in matches of the NAACP? And at that time, one shelved a single barrel gun across my nose, they lead right across there like that, and said, nigger, smell what you're going to die of. Whitley had never tried to register to vote, never was involved in civil rights work, said he recognized one car of that of a white fellow employee, figured he was beaten because of something he must have said at work. Armstrong General Manager F.C. Krauss. The Armstrong Rubber Company emphatically and unequivocally denies that it has any knowledge of any Ku Klux Klan activity on the part of any of its employees while employed by the company. Sir, you seem to be saying then that you do not believe that this man's death was attributed to the fact that he started a new job that very morning that had been held previously by a white man. Is that what you're saying? I am not a law officer or a detective, but I, in my own belief, do not believe that this is the prime cause of this man's death. Cheryl Glover. White denial is as strong as anything we've got out there. Stanley Nelson interviews former Armstrong employee Larry Crawford. There were some known Klansmen who worked in the plant at that time. Did you know who some of those people were? When you would look, you would say, well, that's, oh, I, I know yeah, that's I probably a Klansman. A bunch of them were. How many would you say there were as far as the, that, that you could say were in the Klan at that time? Active, probably 30 or so. 30 or so. Do you recall or did you ever see any harassment on either side? Not that I can ever remember. They were always, you know, just pulling pranks on each other. It, it was nothing with animosity in it, it was just fun. Former Alderman Tony Byrne. There was some Klan activity in Natchez, but it looked like a, a bunch of people running around in sheets to me, and I didn't think it was that serious. Uh, I ended up having a couple of friends in it that I didn't know were in it at the time. The Grand Wizard of the White Knights was going by the name of E.L. McDaniel. I say that it is not violence when we protect ourselves. And I didn't know who it was until they marched downtown and they said, that's E.L. McDaniel there. I said, that's Eddie. 
I've known Eddie all, all my life. I said, what's he doing out there? Stanley Nelson. Early on when I started working on all of these cases, I had never dealt with the FBI or the DOJ in my whole life. I initially began to write stories, and the FBI was reading the material, and agents would occasionally stop by and ask me to share things. I would share, well, this person lives here, and I found this guy, or whatever, and I would have questions for them. Well, good morning, Mr. Perez. How are you doing? And they never answered any of my questions. All right, sir. And, uh, and I suppose by the same token, you, you couldn't comment on a potential motive or, or if you have a suspect. On the phone with U.S. Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, Tom Perez. No, I really can't comment. I, I appreciate the question, but when we have an active investigation, we can't comment. Cynthia Deedle, FBI. What's hard is Stanley can give me stuff. I can't give anything to Stanley. That doesn't go both ways. It's the way things unfortunately are done at the Justice Department. Roy Austin. It, it really doesn't matter who you are. You don't get additional information. Okay. Bye-bye. Finally, I found an FBI agent named John Pfeiffer, who was here for 10 years back during that era. It took a year or two for him to get to know me and to trust me. He told me what they decided to do. We're going to get the name of every known Klansman we can find. We're going to assign two agents. We're going to surveil them, and we're going to follow them, and we're going to make their life miserable until we figure out what was going on. Leland Boyd, son of Klansman Ursel Boyd. Every day I came home, there would be an FBI agent sitting in front of my house. We were coached on how to talk with the FBI agents. We were always told to give an answer they wanted to hear, not the truth. Paula Johnson. There were a number of informants that the FBI had in the Klan in that region. They began to learn from different people that there was this Klan within a Klan called the Silver Dollar Group. Deborah Taylor, daughter of Silver Dollar member Sonny Taylor. They all carried a Silver Dollar their birth year on it. I think my dad was probably on the foundation of the formation of the Silver Dollar Club. But we would go in a restaurant and there would be several people sitting in there and my dad walked up and he dropped a Silver Dollar on the table and says, does that have a familiar ring to it? And uh, the guy sitting at the table said, yeah, that sounds like freedom. I don't know how to term them, and this is like a crude term, but if you had a, a, an all-star clan team, that would be, uh, they would be in the Pro Bowl. A Silver Dollar Group member would be the kind of guy that thought wearing a robe was silly, who thought burning crosses was silly, who rejected the old clan because they weren't achieving anything. He kept his dynamite and hand grenades in the house, so I saw them. You just hear little things about, we gotta take care of business kind of thing. In the record, you would have some of these members of the Silver Dollar Group going back and forth across the Mississippi River, supporting each other with these very nefarious activities. Cynthia Deedle. They were very quick to extreme violence. They felt very comfortable slaughtering people and knowing they could get away with it. 
the FBI has named Silver Dollar Group members as suspects in six murders in the 1960s. Nineteen sixty four Henry D. Nineteen sixty four Charles Moore. Nineteen sixty four Joseph Edwards. Nineteen sixty four Frank Morris. Nineteen sixty five Earl Hodges. Nineteen sixty seven Warless Jackson, Sr. Stanley Nelson. Red Glover. This man that worked at Armstrong, where, where Metcalf and Jackson both worked. He was the number one leader of the Silver Dollar Group. John Pfeiffer was the first agent to interview him after the Warless Jackson murder. Stanley Nelson interviews John Pfeiffer on the phone. Did he come off as like an angry person or just a... No, no, uh, no. It was uh, someone who was in absolute, total emotional control of himself. Huh. You know, as if he's studying you, wow. keeping his mouth shut. Sonny Taylor, who was a silver dollar guy, Sonny said Red picked him up one day, and they go out to an old farmhouse, and they go up in the attic, and they pull out boxes, and there is a, a child's toy drum, and in that toy drum is primer cord material like that. And Sonny says, well, where are you going? You want me to go help you unload this? And said, Red said, no, he'd take care of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he would not trust anybody. Well, do you feel like he he did that bombing all by himself without lookouts or anything? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. At some point in, in 1967, after the bombing happened, Sonny Taylor became an FBI informant. He has been with Glover when Glover's moving bombs around. He provided them a good bit of information. Sonny had even implicated himself in the George Metcalf bombing. He says to the FBI, you give me immunity in this Metcalf case, I'll deliver you enough information you can put Glover away. Cynthia Deedle. You had informants for the FBI back in the 60s say, I can tell you who killed all these people. But that informant was so bad that he almost becomes not credible. Red Glover, there was so much circumstantial evidence that showed that he was involved in the Warless Jackson murder, in other murders. But the FBI at the time had zero hard evidence to bring before a grand jury. That was the problem. They had nothing to go on besides, I know you did it. I know you did it. I heard my mother ask FBI agents for information all the time. She literally begged them for information on my father's case. Nobody actually openly came out and said, we know who did it. I called and we tried to find out who it was. Nobody never would tell us. Nobody, I never know nothing. She was looking for some answers. And she did and gone and still no answers. Since my mother passed, my sister and I had requested information from the FBI concerning my father's death. 
They only said things that upset me worse about my father's case. One FBI agent even asked me, do I know who killed my father? Who do I think killed my father? Then I had another tell me, go to Stanley Nelson. Stanley Nelson has produced a lot of information on my father's case. Stanley Nelson meets with the Jackson siblings. All right. Haven't seen you in a while. Good yeah. to see you. Same here, same here. How you doing today? I'm good, man. You all right? Good, good, good. Thank you. Eight years now we've been working on these cases. So what I thought I'd do today, I kind of wanted to tell you what I found out about the Silver Dollar Group and about your dad's, the bombing, and uh, just share with you what, what I believe happened based on the documents and the interviews that, I, that I'd done. You know, he wasn't just a chance victim. All these people had been murdered before him. All these beatings and all these bombings and all these arsons, and he knew that. And he knew when he took that job, what he faced. So on this February day in 67, it's raining. It's rained all day long. At some point, everyone in the know believes that it was Glover. He slips up under that car and he has his C4 explosives and he wires that bomb to the left turn signal of Jackson's car because when Jackson left, he is going to leave the plant, take a right turn on the minor street, and as he gets to a certain point on minor street, he's gonna turn on his left blinker. Usually at the point he would turn on that left signal, he would be right in the middle of a black neighborhood where more than likely children would be running around and playing. But it just so happened that he got caught into overtime, and so it was 8 o'clock at night, and no one was on the street. He turns that left blinker, blows him out of the car, and he dies right there on the street. He was a courageous man. Imagine if you were the person that took that job, this white, that had always been a white person's job, it's just an amazing thing that he, that he did that. NAACP Executive Director Roy Wilkins. Those of us who admired Warless Jackson, those of us who are proud of the kind of man he was, are gathered here today to extend our comfort to the bereaved family. I didn't understand why all the camera was there. You know, even though we buried my father, I didn't understand burial. I just knew that I wouldn't ever see him again, so. Me being 12, 13, I didn't know what to do, but they'd always say, be strong for your mom and watch out for her. You know, look out for my brothers and sisters. My son, he was seven at the time. That next day, I looked everywhere for my child. He wasn't around. He went over to where they had the truck at, and they found him. 
That's why he bought. That's crying. I know it's hard, man, but I know you want to know what happened to you, and that's... Man, they treat out. It's worse than that. Ain't no people with that cruel, man. Ain't no people with that, that bloodthirsty, man. I ain't no... I had no idea. How could people sleep at night knowing that they don't kill somebody like that? Glover died in 1984 of a brain tumor. All of the other ones, one by one, have pretty well all, all of these suspects that I've been telling you about have pretty well died. When they close the case, they're going to send you all a letter. They can't uh, close the case. America's going to have to answer for the injustice that they have caused on people for many years. was an FBI agent that knocked on the door. I opened the door up. He said, I'm looking for Wurlis Jackson Jr. He went back to his vehicle and gave me that letter. I received this letter in the mail, and it was a slap in the face. I felt like the FBI brought all this attention out to make them make themselves look good. And, you know, and our families still suffered. Denise Jackson Ford, outside the former Armstrong Tire Company. I often tell myself nothing will ever survive over here because of the prejudiceness that happened in this building. A lot of sadness, a lot of hurt. Former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Roy Austin. People are going to be frustrated if someone isn't convicted, if someone isn't arrested. But at some point, a determination has to be made to close the case. We've talked to everyone who could possibly have any real information. How many times are we going to reinvestigate? There's no more value in asking more questions. Of the more than 150 victims' cases reopened under the Till Act, all but 21 have been closed. To date, the Department of Justice has not brought any new charges. I pray someday that we will come to the realization that black lives matter. We suffer the effects of slavery, of abuse. It's been years, and even though I try to say that I'm, I'm over it, you know, the less talk that I do, the better off I am. Some of us suffer a memory. Some suffer it physically. I actually had a hatred for white people for a long time. It's like I blame every white person that I came in contact with. Lord, we say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It took my life down a different avenue. It's been real hard, but uh, you move on or you persevere. John Lewis. During the height of the civil rights movement, when people were murdered or beaten, do people get counseling? No. We've been left on our own. This is a mom on the moral table, my father standing over. 
the pain that my family suffered then, we still suffer now. A hate crimes panel at the Atlanta Civil Rights Museum. There's a sense that families like ours, we should just get over it. But we have to admit the truth first. You can have memorials, yes, but memorials cannot uh, clothe and feed a family. I was only, what, 10 when my father got killed. They had five children, four girls and one boy. And of course, you see the baby behind me. <laughs> Those of you who seek injustice, you all are not alone. We're all in this together. It's not an easy journey, it's a difficult journey. So sometimes you gotta step back and take a look and even to take a break, because this can be very exhausting sometimes. What really hurt me about today is hearing y'all stories, man. To see that y'all still fighting. You know, it, it should have... It should have been automatic. Oh, brother, that... Justice, the death of your sister has created a bond with you and I, with all those that are involved in the civil rights era and so forth. And you're gonna have some dark nights and dark days because of your sister's death. Even as I have had with my father's death. And I want you to know I wanna be that person that you can call and talk to. And bro, <clears throat> feels good to hear that, man. Because there's a lot of times where you just feel like you out here by yourself all alone. I was so angry. Don't let anger get it. I was so frustrated. I was so revengeful that I couldn't stand myself. Yeah. She said, don't get like that, brother. Let love rule and reign in your life. It's a cruel world, but you be that light. Professor Akinyele Omoja. In Natchez and all over America, the history of black resistance has been erased. They don't want to have anything that might make white people feel uncomfortable. The Natchez boycott doesn't fit that narrative. The deacons don't fit that narrative. They don't fit it at all. Sarah Clifford Boxley with Black Natchez Tourists. Coming out of the Black Conscious Movement, I was looking to highlight the injustice of the unequal history here. Yeah. We're fixing to go left on Martin Luther King, slow just a minute. If you could see that, uh, that building right there, the two-story building, is where the president of the Deacon for Defense and Justice, James Jackson, cut hair there. This place right here was called the White House. This is where Charles Evers hung out and made their strategy for what they would do. The deacons talk about how they used to be on top of the buildings right here, protecting Charles Evers and other people as they met. This church right here is called Beulah Baptist Church, and this is where hundreds of people were attempting to protest. They arrested them and took them and sent them to Parchment, Mississippi. Within that same arrest was my mother and my father. It was the first time I ever missed my mother and father from being at home as a kid. Where we're going now is to show you where Wallace Jackson lived when he 
heard the explosion. Did we ever get anybody? No, never. To the left here, you'll see the sign. We have a monument marking over here on the right side of the street where you see where the bomb went off at. Denise Jackson Ford, before a memorial marker for her father. This was the piece that I found within myself to honor the late Willis Jackson Sr. He received the promotion at the Armstrong Time Rubber Company that otherwise would have gone to a white employee for a five cent raise. You think about five cent. A Warless Jackson, oftentimes, we don't hear the narratives of those folks. They're just a regular person who decides to stand up and to work on behalf of the community. Repeat your name? Warless Jackson. Willis Jackson. But our story should include folks like that. It has been a hard 54 years, and still it's hard, but it brings great honor that I stand here in his steps and on his shoulders. Thank you, Daddy. Go to pbs.org slash frontline for more on the historical footage from filmmakers Ed Pincus and David Newman used in American Reckoning. What's your name? Willis Jackson. And check out Unresolved, our multi-platform experience examining America's legacy of racist killings. This house was the start of the civil rights movement. That's Emmett Till's house. Connect with Frontline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and stream anytime on the PBS video app, YouTube, or pbs.org slash frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues and by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler and additional support from Ku and Patricia Ewan, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. Support for American Reckoning is provided by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work. The WNET Group's Chasing the Dream Initiative on Poverty and Opportunity in America, with major funding by the JPB Foundation, and additional funding by and additional funding for American Reckoning by the following. With gratitude to Ed Pincus and David Newman, the filmmakers behind Black Natchez and so much of the footage in this film. American Reckoning was written, produced, and directed by Brad Lichtenstein and Yoruba Richin, and co-produced by Hilary Batchelder. The executive producers are Rainey Aronson-Rath and Don Porter in this co-production with Retro Report. The managing editor of Frontline is Andrew Metz. The executive producer of Frontline is Rainey Aronson-Rath. Frontline's American Reckoning is available on Amazon Prime Video.